Hello and welcome to Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. I'm Ian Masters, and today we'll look into a number of stories and issues in the news. We'll begin with the announcement today by Attorney General Garland that the Department of Justice is suing the state of Texas over its brazenly racist redistricting maps. Following the new census that finds the population of Texas has grown by 4 million in the last 10 years, with 95% of the increase Latino, African American, and other minorities. Yet, the Republican legislature in Texas has engineered the state's two new congressional districts into gerrymandered white majority seats. Joining us is Lydia Camarillo, who serves as the president of the Southwest Voter Registration Education Project, a national nonprofit, nonpartisan organization based out of San Antonio, Texas. She plays a key role in developing the tactical strategies for the SVREP's nonpartisan voter registration, voter education, and get out the vote campaigns. And we'll discuss whether her organizations and others representing minority voters will prevail with the help of the Department of Justice under Section 2 of what is left of the Voting Rights Act. Then, with the sentencing today of the former civilian leader of Myanmar on bogus charges by the brutal military junta, we will speak with Michael Beer, Director of Nonviolence Internationals, a global activist for human rights and minority rights. Having trained activists in many countries, including Myanmar, Kosovo, Tibet, Indonesia, Thailand, Cambodia, India, Zimbabwe, and the United States, he travels to Myanmar frequently and has worked for 30 years supporting the nonviolent campaigns for peace, justice, and democracy in the country. We'll discuss how the mafia of murderous and crooked generals stays in power with the help of a similar military mafia in Thailand and the communist government in China. Then finally, we'll examine the diplomatic boycott of the Beijing Winter Olympics announced today by the White House because of the Chinese Communist government's, quote, ongoing genocide and crimes against humanity in Xinjiang and other human rights abuses. Joining us is Sean Roberts, a professor of the practice of international affairs and director of the International Development Studies Program at George Washington University's Elliott School of International Affairs. He is the author of the new book, the War on the Uyghurs, China's Internal Campaign Against a Muslim Minority. And since I recently resigned in protest from KPFK, Pacifica's Los Angeles station, Background Briefing is now completely independent and remains commercial-free, corporate-free, but relies entirely on your support to keep providing you with the daily briefing, which is free to the public. To those of you who can support us for as little as $5 a month, we hope that you become subscribers by making a tax-deductible donation to our nonprofit foundation, the Public Truth Media Foundation, at backgroundbriefing.org slash donate. And thank you for keeping us on the air and online as we continue to build a reality-based community in post-truth America at this critical time when we must engage fully in the political warfare battles underway as the next few years will decide the fate and future of American democracy itself. And joining us now is Lydia Camarilla, who serves as the president of Southwest Voter Registration Education Project, a national nonprofit, nonpartisan organization based out of San Antonio, Texas. She plays a key role in developing the tactical strategies of the SVREP, nonpartisan voter registration, voter education, and get out the vote campaigns. And prior to joining SVREP, 
Camarillo served as the National Director of the Leadership Development Program for the Mexican-American Legal Defense and Education Fund. Welcome to Background Briefing, Lydia Camarillo. Thank you. Thank you for this Well, thanks for joining us. And today, the Attorney General Merrick Garland announced that the Justice Department is suing Texas over redistricting maps, citing discrimination against minorities and saying that they will soothe Texas under Section 2 of the Voting Rights Act, or what's left of the Voting Rights Act, since it was largely gutted by John Roberts back in the Shelby County case, where they stripped out Section 5. And in fact, the Attorney General mentioned that without that tool, they are limited because of the inability to pre-clear. So in other words, these southern states, former Confederate states, etc., can go ahead and do their worst, and then then you have to try and undo what they've done. So I guess he's more or less saying that the DOJ is on its back foot. But what do you think they can do, Lydia, under Section 2 of what's left of the Voting Rights Act? Well, thank you for, um, you know, having this important conversation. What's important to um, remember is that Texas gained 3.9 million more people over the last census, of which 2 million were Latinos, and 90% of t- the total uh, increase of population is Latino, Black, Asian, and other communities. However, the state of Texas, in its effort to uh, sustain and maintain its power and expand it, uh, not only uh, retrogressed and violated the Voting Rights Act by canceling Congressional District 23 and 15, or rather um, dismantling them in such a way that Latinos will not be able to elect candidate of choice. And also, there is no growth. Uh, our, lawsuit, our lawsuit demonstrates that not only can it be fixed, the 23rd and the 15th, which is the 23rd is in San Antonio and to El Paso, the 15th is in the Rio Grande Valley all the way up north. And we were able to create a new district in Harris County, which is San Jose, and I'm sorry, uh, Harris County and Houston, and then we're able to create a a district exclusively in Dallas, allowing for a black district in Fort Worth, which uh, Congressman Vesey currently is. The Justice Department today joined the lawsuit, demonstrating once again uh, that the state of Texas uh, is in fact gerrymandering, violating the Voting Rights Act, and intentionally working to stop. Latinos from electing candidates have the choice in sustaining and expanding their uh, political power. We are very concerned also, uh, as the Department of Justice mentioned, that in 2013, uh, the Supreme Court ruling under Shelby basically dismantled Section 5, which allowed for communities uh, to protect themselves and the Justice Department to use this section to protect us. Anything having to do with changing elections and elections, including the drawing of the lines every 10 years. We also know that Section 2 was weakened. Uh, however, we, we South as voter, and the groups that filed, including the Justice Department, filed a lawsuit using Section 2 of the Voting Rights Act, and we believe, because it's based on language, that we can uh, win in court and, create, and fix uh, CD23, CD15, and create two new districts, and that's what's at stake right now. Let's remember that 39.8% of the population is white, and they control 60% of the seats. And 39.4% of the state is Latino, and we are underrepresented dramatically and drastically. 
And again, I'm speaking with Lydia Cabrera, who serves as the president of the Southwest Voter Registration Education Project, a national nonprofit, nonpartisan organization based out of San Antonio, Texas. She plays a key role in developing the tactical strategies of the SVREP, nonpartisan voter registration, voter education, and get out the vote campaigns. And prior to joining SVREP, Camarillo served as the national director of the leadership development program for the Mexican American Legal Defense and Education Fund. So just to summarize the brazen nature of what Governor Abbott and this white minority in power, this Republican white minority in power in Texas, it's so brazen. In addition to the population of Texas in the last decade of 4 million people, 90 to 95% of which are minorities, mostly Latino, then what happens is that doesn't count. And the two new seats, because of redistricting, are engineered to become white-only seats or white-majority seats. And, and now this is the second time in a month where the Justice Department have had to sue the Republican state lawmakers in Texas, and this time today, for actively discriminating against Latinos and other minorities. So it's pretty brazen. So how do you feel as somebody that's worked on getting this case brought forth. So you can't shame well, the shameless, but what are you... What <laughs> well, are you going to beat them? That's what I want to know. I, you beat them by having a number of people uh, standing up and having the Justice Department join the lawsuit is quite is is very important. In the last cycle, we also sued, and the Justice Department at that time also uh, worked to make sure that we would uh, have justice and that our lawsuits and their their, their lawsuit would prevail. Uh, think about this, um, as you clearly said, uh, the state grew by 4.7%, 4.7% white, 13.9% black, 15.3% Asian, 16.5% other, other communities that may not consider themselves Latino or black, but maybe several races, uh, ethnicities and then 50% Latino. Yet, uh, once again, the state of Texas, much like what it did earlier this year when it passed Senate Bill 1 uh, to uh, stop people from voting and violate our rights and allow partisans to walk into the voting booths to block us from voting and stopping us from voting and intimidating us, we sued that as well and the justice suit as well. Uh, I think that the state of Texas uh, is used to doing this expects to win, uh, knows that with the uh, justice, uh, with the uh, Section 5 of the Voting Rights Act not helping us this time around, they think they can win. In the last cycle, we were able to, to have a temporary map that was used uh, almost what we had asked for in our case. Uh, and then it was fixed a little bit afterwards so that in the elections of 2012, we would have a somewhat corrected map that would later was that were later that was later fixed. I'm not sure because we don't have Section Five of the Voting Rights Act that we will be able to do that and fix the maps until 2024. Now, our case, much like the Justice Department is and other groups that mock the Mexican American Le uh, Legislative Caucus. And there's also Democrats and other groups that filed, NAACP, other groups that filed are, are probably going to be consolidating their cases under ours because we filed first. But what I want to say is important is that 
we know that we're pushing to uh, ensure that they fix the maps before the 22 elections. March is Texas primary. It might be too late. The courts may not decide because we don't have Section 5, but we're certainly going to fight for it. Texas has gerrymandered, and we intend to violate the Latino and Black communities since we've been doing redistricting. And in every cycle, we have won and we have prevailed. And I hope that this time we do the same. So after Attorney General Garland spoke today at the press conference at the Department of Justice, he turned the mic over to the Associate Attorney General, Vinita Gupta, and she said the Justice Department will not stand idly by in the face of unlawful attempts to restrict access to the ballot. So the fight is on. I guess at the end of the day, you just can't believe that somehow the federal government is on the back foot against a state government, but that's the way these conservatives on the Supreme Court see things, don't they? They, they believe in states' rights and that the states should control elections and that the individual right to vote in this country, not that there is actually a constitutional right to vote in America, which is, I think, in itself pretty appalling. That seems to be what you're up against in the, in the broader landscape, Lydia, am I correct? That is, that is correct. We're, we're against uh, a reality that states draw draw their uh, election laws. The election laws are determined at the state level. That if a state house is controlled by Republicans uh, more and more and more, uh, they're using them to block uh, people from voting. We saw that in Georgia. We saw that in Arizona. We've seen that in Florida. We've seen that in almost every state where tech- Republicans have controlled the, the, the state houses, which is why also the redistricting process is very important to them. They want to sustain and control state houses and congressional seats. Uh, our map demonstrates that we can not only fix the, cur- the seats that we want at the state house and, the, and at the Senate level and the congressional level, but that we can gain seats. Uh, the Justice Department, uh, I don't know yet what they're going to do uh, in terms of maps that they're going to recommend, but one thing's certain is that now we have uh, also standing with us and fighting with us uh, a very strong uh, administration that cares about voting rights, standing with us, trying to make sure that we uh, voters in Texas get justice. And as the attorney general uh, uh, started his press conference, voters should uh, choose their representatives, not the other way around. Uh, I think that both the attorney general and the assistant attorney general uh, were very eloquent. And we're excited that they're part of this effort to try to make sure that Voters in Texas, Latino and Black and other communities of color, and particularly for us, because we are fighting for the Latino community, can elect candidates of their choice. So just in closing then, Lydia, I know it's a sort of pointless exercise, but nevertheless, <laughs> I'm curious to, th- to know what Chief Justice John Roberts thinks about when he told us all that we've moved on, civil rights have worked, Voting rights have worked. We don't need Section 5 anymore. I mean, it's just it's the same defense that other conservatives on the Supreme Court have had for Citizens United. You know, they said, oh, well, mm-hmm. it's no problem because we'll have full disclosure. Well, we never got full disclosure. And that the minute that Section 5 was stripped out of the Voting Rights Act of 1965, what happened was literally that within minutes, a lot of these red states 
push through election laws that were packaged and ready to go. So those are the facts. So I'm just wondering about this court, particularly now when so much attention is on this court over abortion rights, which again is involved the state of Texas. Have you seen any indication that uh, maybe Roberts is looking at the reality as opposed to the ruling? (laughs) Well, first of all, I'm never going to attempt to understand what the justices say, whether they are justices that were appointed by the Democratic president or a Republican president. But I can certainly say, having said that, that I think that Justice Roberts believed uh, that by using the uh, excuse, and I'm going to say the excuse, uh, I'm going to use that word, that because we now had uh, a president that had been elected that was black, there was no longer any injustice and discrimination in America. We know that that is not the case. We see it day in and day out by small changes that they make at the elections offices or large changes or what we're seeing now in the redistricting or the voter IDs, uh, whether it's Texas, Georgia, Florida, Arizona, any other state, we see that that still exists. But we can definitely say that they were finding an excuse much like what um, the, the, the various uh, state legislators and justices at the various levels that are that want to abolish the right for women to choose are doing so, uh, and and we are we do have a concern. Much um, we have a concern that we don't have Section Five anymore. We also have a concern that Section Two, while it still exists, has been weakened. We have a concern that now the United States Supreme Court it's six to three, and we believe that uh, they. If if we are right and justices are, in fact, prepared to act based on the letter of the law, they will do the right thing. But we also know that the justices, in spite of saying that they are fair uh, and will and will not be partisan, many of them are. So we are worried about that. But I hope and we hope and we're going to fight hard uh, to uh, win at the courts. And uh, the lawyers that are representing us, at least at Maldives, are brilliant. And I have no doubt that the lawyers of the Justice Department are just as brilliant or, or equally brilliant. And last but not least, for South as a voter, because we're an organizing arm, we also have to fight by organizing, expanding the electorate, and mobilizing the, the Latino vote in other communities of colors. Well, Lydia Camarillo, I thank you very much for joining us here today. Thank you. And again, I've been speaking with Lydia Camarillo, who serves as the president of the Southwest Voter Registration Education Project, a national nonprofit, nonpartisan organization based out of San Antonio, Texas. She plays a key role in developing the tactical strategies for the SVREP nonpartisan voter registration, voter education, and get out the vote campaigns. And prior to joining SVREP, Camarillo served as the national director of the Leadership Development Program for the Mexican American Legal Defense and Education Fund. We're going to take a brief station break. We're back today looking into the sentencing of the former civilian leader of Myanmar on bogus charges by the brutal military junta. You don't need to change the futures with us. You don't need to change.
Welcome back. I'm Ian Masters, and this is Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. And joining us now is Michael Beer, who's the Director of Nonviolence International and a global activist for human rights and minority rights, having trained activists in many countries, including Myanmar, Kosovo, Tibet, Indonesia, Thailand, Cambodia, India, Zimbabwe, and the United States. He travels to Myanmar frequently and has worked for 30 years supporting the nonviolent campaigns for peace and justice and democracy in the country. Welcome to Background Briefing, Michael Beer. Great to be with you and your audience. Well, thanks for joining us. And Aung San Suu Kyi, the former leader of Myanmar, has been ousted for some time. She's been under arrest at an undisclosed location, but now these courts, military-run courts, have just found her guilty of inciting dissent, breaking COVID rules, illegally using a walkie-talkie, and the judge sentenced her to four years and then immediately reduced that down to two years. But there's an expectation with all the other charges that she could spend up to 100 years in jail. So what's your take on this in terms of this is this military regime, right? This is what they do. And I find it extraordinary that these horrible, boneheaded, crooked generals are still around and still able to get away with, obviously, widespread abuses against the people of the country. I think the vast majority of the people of Myanmar or Burma will agree with you. Uh, The military clearly is hated by much of the population. Their political parties have been badly beaten in any elections that have had been held recently. And the only way they could stay in power uh, was to Uh, say that the elections were fraudulent and to uh, imprison the elected leaders. And the resistance in Burma since February 1 coup has been uh, tremendous. Uh, And the conflict is very, very severe all over the country. Uh, One million people are uh, displaced, at least. Uh, A collapse in the economy in the healthcare system, uh, uh, quite a bit of violence, uh, mostly by the regime, but uh, some parts of the resistance are using violence. And so we really have a country that is uh, facing uh, a desperate kind of situation. And just, what, a couple of days ago, the military drove a truck into a group of peaceful protesters, did they not? That's right. There is a still a very strong nonviolent movement and protest movement all over the country, including in urban areas, and a uh, group in a, uh, uh, in the capital, uh, what former capital, Rangoon or Yangon, uh, as it's now called, uh, were marching around and the military just drove a truck right through these people and uh, many were, uh, some were killed and others hurt. Uh, The regime has killed at least 1,300, has uh, many, many thousands in jail, and have burned down many villages and, uh, again, helped cause one million people to be displaced. So when I sort of mentioned these terrible generals and the fact that the top people are major kleptocrats and they're just thugs, so obvious, is it that simple that this group of people with the guns are able to just suppress this country indefinitely? One of the depressing things about authoritarian and totalitarian and autocratic regimes is they can last for decades. People can go through absolute 
hell, like in Zimbabwe, for example, and these dictators remain in power. So is there any way to get rid of them? We have seen uh, a number of successful nonviolent revolutions in recent years. Um, Sudan in 2019 had a, uh, a remarkable nonviolent revolution against their 30-year military dictator. And they recently had a coup that they were able to partially defeat, although the situation there is, is not easy. There are some examples in recent years of success. Armenia had a very successful revolution in 2018. But we clearly have also seen countries like Myanmar, like Belarus, uh, for example, that have had these coups. And they are successful partly because they get support from outside powers. Uh, the people in Belarus and Myanmar are absolutely overwhelmingly opposed to these military thugs. And you call them correctly, they're a mafia. They're a corrupt mafia um, in both basically countries. And the support from outside powers is sufficient, at least for a time, to keep them propped up. And part of our role here as international citizens is to put pressure on all of these governments that are supporting and propping up authoritarian uh, governments and to, uh, because we want the people obviously to, to be freed from this corrupt regimes. And that's what we're doing uh, here at Nonviolence International. We're working with coalitions of groups and there are many, many groups around the world, wherever you may be listening, that are working to boycott uh, the military regime, to get governments, around the world to stand up to these uh, military people. And uh, I think collectively these regimes cannot survive because their countries are basically just going down the tubes and at some point they just collapse. And uh, which is causes horrifying, not just for the people they're concerned, but then for all the neighbors and whatnot. So what happens in Myanmar does matter. What happens in Belarus does matter. And we ask everybody to to prioritize uh, giving help in whatever way they can. And again, I'm speaking with Michael Beer, who's Director of Nonviolence International and a global activist for human rights and minority rights, having trained activists in many countries, including Myanmar, Kosovo, Tibet, Indonesia, Thailand, Cambodia, India, Zimbabwe, and the United States. He travels to Myanmar frequently and has worked for 30 years supporting the nonviolent campaigns for peace, justice, and democracy in the country. So when you talk about outside actors and outside powers helping people like the dictator in Belarus stay in power, that obviously Putin's helping him stay in power. And in the case of these horrible generals in uh, Myanmar or Burma, by the way, I noticed today that the statement from the Secretary of State, Anthony Blinken, condemning the sentencing of Aung San Suu Kyi, as he uh, referred to the country as Burma. So what's going on there? Is is it Myanmar? Is that the preferred title of the generals? And Burma is the way that the opposition likes to have their country called? Or how does it, what's the distinction there? The distinction has been that the generals called it Myanmar and the ethnic minorities in the outside world called it Burma. Uh, when the country had some semi-democratization where the citizens were given some limited 
opportunity to have some elections. The uh, elected leaders uh, agreed to also call it Myanmar. A at this point, it's not quite the uh, uh, as important as it used to be to make this distinction, uh, and uh, either is 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 fine um, to use at this point. But uh, the United States has been, generally speaking, on Burma pretty good, uh, in my view, uh, over the years, uh, mostly because Myanmar is not terribly important to U.S. foreign policy. Uh, and so, as you know, uh, the U.S. is horrible when it comes to democracy, if it has anything to do with oil or our national security interests. But there are a few places in the world where we can pretend to think that democracy is a terribly important thing. And Burma has been one of those places where the United States has generally had a pretty good policy. And we hope that it will continue to do so. Our biggest fear is that, uh, the, United, that the hawks here in the United States will not turn Burma into a, a containment strategy for China kind of issue, because the last thing we need is a, a, a war or a cold war with China. And for uh, international uh, governments to politicize what's going on in Burma or Myanmar and make that into some sort of larger geostrategic battle. That's the last thing that the Burmese people need. Well, I was going to bring up China because I was asking you or about to ask you the question about how these dictators are helped by outside support in the case of uh, in Belarus from Putin and in the case of Myanmar from the Chinese government. And they, of course, refused to condemn the sentencing of the former leader today, Aung San Suu Kyi, saying that they are urging all parties to work together to continue the democratic transition. So what does China get out of this, being one of the, what, the early supporters of this dreadful regime? China uh, has a longstanding interest, obviously, in Burma because it's their neighbor. And China, frankly, has been uh, not bad on this issue, historically speaking. Uh, they've uh, not been very happy about this coup d'etat. They had a good relationship with Aung San Suu Kyi and the Democratic uh, elected government. And yet they're not willing to stand up and really uh, push for the reversal of this coup partly because they are an authoritarian government themselves and they don't want to be encouraging democracy anywhere. That's one. Um, and uh, they do have a longstanding policy about interfering in, in, in other countries' affairs and have done a pretty good job of living up to that. They know that once they start intervening here and there, that their uh, uh, political uh, uh, capital will be, will be damaged around the world. So... Uh, the other country that's been supporting uh, Burma a lot has been Thailand, uh, which has its own dictatorship going on, uh, military dictatorship and their own mafia. And these mafia governments are helping each other, which is a real problem around the world. We know that there are authoritarian governments and mafia governments around the world that are actually supporting each other and helping each other. And one of the things happening next week in the United States is a big democracy summit. And what we want is we want democratic governments to really support each other in a much greater way, and not just democratic governments that are supportive of the United States, uh, but we, we, we need everybody, to, we need to support democracy everywhere, uh, even if it's not in the interests of some of the major powers. 
Well, I think it's helpful what you're saying, uh, Michael, because I refer to them these generals as thugs, and you're referring to these governments as mafias, and they are. And we've seen so many examples of that. I mean, look at the Assad family in Syria. I mean, they're a complete mafia family, and yet they've correct. held on to power, and the whole country's been destroyed. It's an absolute That's correct. And the Assad, regime, the Assad regime has been held up by the Iranians and the, and the Hezbollah and Russia. Right. And, and you have now in, in Syria all these international powers in there. We have troops from the United States, from Russia, from Turkey, from Iran, from, from Lebanon. We have Israel bombing it at will. I mean, how can the Syrian people ever get to peace when their country is being occupied by five or six major uh, foreign powers who are playing geostrategic, uh, geopolitical games? And so we don't want this to happen in, in Myanmar. Obviously, it's horrifying as it is, but we certainly don't want international troops uh, coming in there and, and it turning into a geostrategic football any more than it already is. The people of Burma are very strong. I think they're going to win, but uh, it's going to require relentless pressure um, on 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 uh, the international community's part and, and the people's part. I would say one of the encouraging things that we've seen in Burma is the fact that we have the ethnic minorities, the indigenous peoples of the country, really standing up in unity with the majority Burma population, uh, in unity against the government. And historically, there have been two big problems in Burma. One has been the democracy issue. The other has been the issue of ethnic minorities not being uh, given full citizenship and equality. And these uh, unity now bodes well for the future of Burma, uh, uh, so that you can get some sort of federal system there that will work for the future of Burma. So let, let's, that, that's some silver lining. Right, but you've got to address the Rohingya, don't you? I mean, look what happened there. They were attempted genocide. They've been pushed into neighboring countries where they're not welcome, and they're living in terrible conditions. And Aung San Suu Kyi herself, even though she won the Nobel Prize some years back, her reputation has been very badly damaged internationally because of her turning a blind eye or actually supporting the military assault on this Muslim minority uh, who've been driven out of the country. So that's, cor that's correct. And one of the silver linings is that there's been a significant shift among the Burmese population and leadership uh, with regards to the Rohingya in the last since the coup. Uh, there's a long way to go, but there has been substantial shift in support of their human rights by uh, a significant part of the Burma population. And I'm hopeful that uh, we'll see a much better outcome for the Rohingya than we would have seen just a, a, a year ago. So are you saying, Michael, that the people in Myanmar suddenly had second thoughts or developed a conscience about this sort of racist genocide against this Muslim minority of Rohingyas? Is that what happened? They no, some... I, there's been a shift. I wouldn't say there's been a, a let, let's not overstate the uh, how fast things can change when it comes to prejudices around racism um, and, 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 uh, and uh, ethnocentric uh, fascism. But um, there has been a shift. And part of the shift comes from all of the other minority groups in Burma, 
who are not Muslim, but are Christian and um, or other minorities in various ways. And they have really stepped up to support the uh, Rohingya uh, because they realize that the military of Burma treats ethnic minorities uh, historically in, in very similar ways. So there's been a significant change there. And uh, I think the many of the Burmese people in the country who historically uh, gave the military a pass are not giving the military a pass anymore. So there's been a shift. I don't want to overstate it, but uh, clearly the alternative government, the national unity government, uh, has made much more favorable kind of policy statements with regards to the Rohingya uh, than has ever been made before. Well, Mark Abira, I thank you very much for joining us here today. Thank you. It's been a pleasure, and thank you for all of your interest in, in Burma and Myanmar. Appreciate it. Well, thank you again. I've been speaking with Michael Beer, who's the Director of Nonviolence International and a Global Activist for Human Rights and Minority Rights. Having trained activists in many countries, including Myanmar, Kosovo, Tibet, Indonesia, Thailand, Cambodia, India, Zimbabwe, and the United States, he travels frequently to Myanmar and has worked for 30 years supporting the nonviolent campaigns for peace, justice, and democracy in the country. We're going to take a brief station break and back examining the diplomatic boycott of the Beijing Winter Olympics announced today by the White House. Welcome back. I'm Ian Masters, and this is Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. And joining us now is Sean Roberts, a professor in the practice of international affairs and director of the International Development Studies Program at George Washington University's Elliott School of International Affairs. He's the author of the new book, The War on the Uyghurs, China's Internal Campaign Against a Muslim Minority. Welcome to Background Briefing, Sean Roberts. Thank you for inviting me. Well, thanks for joining us. And today, the White House announced that it will be conducting a diplomatic boycott of the 2022 Beijing Olympics. So first of all, let's get the definitions. What's a diplomatic boycott? Well, a diplomatic boycott means that they won't be sending any representatives from the government. Usually, the Olympics uh, sends invitations for to heads of state who rarely go. But the heads of state uh, from various countries generally send a delegation in their place. So in this uh, instance, the U.S. says that it will not send any representatives of the U.S. government to the Olympic Games. And in the announcement today from the White House press secretary, they cited the People's Republic of China's ongoing genocide and crimes against humanity in Xinjiang and other human rights abuses. So... This clearly relates to the work that you're doing and that the book that you wrote, Sean. Yes, yes, it does indeed. And and I'm hoping that this sends a message that will also become part of the coverage of the Olympics, you know, because I think just the fact that representatives of the U.S. government will not be attending 
uh, could easily get lost, except, you know, among uh, people right now. But you know, during the Olympics, uh, hopefully this will, will shine a light on what's happening to the Uyghur people inside China. And there have been some Uyghur activists urging that the U.S. conduct this uh, diplomatic boycott, but they certainly don't have the kind of public relations clout that the Chinese government has, right? <laughs> it's a pretty one-sided battle, isn't it? Yes, indeed. There is um, There's something of an information warfare uh, ongoing about this issue. And I wouldn't say that the Chinese government is actually that 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 well prepared for it, but uh, it's certainly you know much more powerful in terms of being able to sway other governments uh, than our Uyghur activists. So you know uh, one of the things that's been noted frequently is that very few Muslim majority countries have spoken out about what's happening to Uyghurs inside China, and that's largely because. The Chinese government is establishing very close uh, and very uh, vibrant economic relations with uh, most of the Muslim world, and most states would prefer not to have this interfere with their economic relations with China. So I think it's predictable, isn't it, Sean Roberts, that this will the Chinese government will play this out as a domestic political issue and and turn it into a kind of propaganda campaign, you know, suggesting that Americans are hypocritical, as they usually do, and then that this is all uh, an insult to us and that the U.S. is resentful of our rise as a great international power. That seems to be the kind of propaganda thread that they've used in the past. Do you expect that to be the theme in terms of a response? I do expect that to be the theme. I mean, there's been some attempts by the Chinese state to suggest, well, you should come and see what's happening in the Uyghur region. Uh, but of course, uh, they're not offering very good access to that region. And the excuse often has, has related been related to the pandemic. And I think, you know, in this instance as well, I don't think that there's going to be necessarily a lot of opportunities for those going to see the Olympics, to uh, see any Uyghurs, except perhaps some actors on a stage or something. Uh, I don't think that they'll be uh, allowing people who've come for the Olympics to go to the Uyghur region and see for themselves what's happening there. So I, I think it, 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 it still puts China in an uncomfortable position. Uh, certainly the Olympics uh, is an opportunity to have the light shown on your country and it's at a time where uh, there's a lot of things that the Chinese government uh, actually does not want to uh, highlight. And again, I'm speaking with Sean Roberts, who's a professor in the practice of international affairs and director of the International Development Studies Program at George Washington University's Elliott School of International Affairs. He's the author of the new book, The War on the Uyghurs, China's Internal Campaign Against a Muslim Minority. And of course, I suppose it's important to point out, Sean, that the diplomatic boycott announced today by the White House against the Beijing Winter Olympics over human rights concerns will not affect the athletes, uh, both for the Olympics itself, uh, the U.S. Olympic team and uh, the Paralympic team. That is correct, yeah. And, and um, 
You know, I think the the question to me about this, I, I you know, I think that this diplomatic boycott certainly sends a message from the government. But what we know, of course, is that uh, NBC will be covering the Olympics. And uh, I'm wondering to what extent that NBC will be discussing this particular issue uh, and highlighting what's happening to the Uyghurs. Um, so that that will be I think that's still to be seen how, um, you know, a very large network is going to handle this. Uh, they want, of course, lots of viewership, but uh, they don't also want to uh, be portrayed as facilitating uh, crimes against humanity or even genocide. But could the Chinese pull the plug on them in any way? Because the Chinese are very sensitive about any criticism. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think it'll be an interest. It'll be very interesting to watch because, um, you know, I at the same time, I don't think uh, the Chinese government's going to want to stop global coverage of the Olympic Games. And, and I imagine that, you know, NBC is bringing uh, a lot of the viewership, uh, at least in America. And uh, I don't think they'll want to black out the Olympics in the United States. But it could it could lead to some conflicts because I'm, I'm sure there'll be I'm sure NBC will feel that it has to address these issues uh, while it's also showing the games. Well, the Chinese spokesman for the Ministry of Foreign Affairs has uh, said that the boycott would be a naked political provocation and a serious offense to the 1.4 billion Chinese people. So uh, they're, I guess, is signaling that they're going to make this a internal propaganda issue. Um, yeah, absolutely. And, and you know, I mean, uh, this is... This, as you alluded to earlier, is kind of um, straight from stock, talking points that the Communist Party of China has been using and responding to anything about this issue. Of course, I think during the Olympics, the Chinese government's going to want most of all to um, to not talk about this issue. So in terms of more effective way to help the Uyghurs, what about there's a bill before the Congress that's aimed at boycotting any Chinese-made goods that are made by slave Uyghur slave labor? Is that I don't know where that bill stands. Are you following it? I am following it. Uh, I think it's very important. I think that there is a lot of opposition to the bill because I I do think the only way to really hold China accountable is through economic means, but uh, any country, including the United States, that seeks to hold China accountable through economic means will also uh, suffer economically to a certain extent. And so, uh, you know, there's a lot of American corporations right now that have production operations in the People's Republic of China. And this legislation would force them to be accountable to make sure there was no slave labor anywhere in their supply chain in China. Uh, and I think a lot of corporations are pushing back on that. They don't want to be held accountable to determine that. And I think a lot of congressmen are in agreement with uh, various corporations on this. Uh, so it'll be interesting to see. I would say, this bill was first 
came into Congress two years ago, and it seemed that there was unanimous support for it, but that was before uh, corporations started to look at it closely and, and try to push back on it. What about Wall Street? I mean, you've got, you know, these Wall Street titans, like you've got the Bridgewater founder, hedge fund guy, Ray Dalio, equating Washington and Beijing uh, and excusing China's human rights abuses, including uh, its recent disappearance of the star tennis player, Peng Shui. Yes, yeah. Uh, you know, I mean, this is this is the real problem, I think, that what the crisis that's happening to Uyghurs inside China faces is that we live in a globalized uh, economy where uh, we're all very much connected. And, you, you know, pushing back on uh, internal human rights issues is going to upset that global economy. Uh, and of course, people who are making a lot of money off that global economy are, don't want to see that disruption. Uh, and I don't think I think a lot of states really don't want to see that disruption either. Um, I, I I state in my book that I think really the the strongest uh, response to what the Chinese government is doing has to come from the grassroots. We have to see people using their economic powers, consumers, to to act responsibly and and highlight this because that that's when corporations start, uh, I think, taking on um, more moralistic stances when uh, their customers um, are threatening to uh, stop buying their products. And on the issue of the Muslim majority countries like Iran, for example, which is dependent upon the Chinese enormously buying its uh, oil because they're under a boycott and they have really close economic ties, China and Iran. Clearly, the theocratic government there is not going to say a word about the abuses of the Muslims in um, Xinjiang, the Uyghurs. So what other Muslim-majority nations. Have the Indonesians ever said anything, for example? Was it well, I, so really, there's been very few voices from Muslim-majority states. Um, Turkey has, at times, um, spoken out about this. It most recently was uh, the only Muslim-majority country to sign a document uh, that was signed by numerous countries, mostly Western democracies, asking the UN Human Rights Council to um, examine what's happening to Uyghurs inside China. But at the same time, Turkey's been, uh, has, has often tried to play both sides of this issue. Uh, other countries in the Arab world, for example, Saudi Arabia, the United Arab Emirates, uh, none of these countries have spoken out. Uh, Indonesia um, and Malaysia, there's been, um, a lot of action among civil society actors, uh, but the state has the states have been very careful about what they've said. Malaysia, uh, for example, did vow that it would not extradite Uyghurs to China, which was a positive step. But the the states themselves are not going to make, I think, any statement that's critical of directly critical of the Chinese government about what's happening. Um, so you, what you see is, I think, in the in the Muslim majority countries, 
those where there is a modicum of democracy, um, there is a lot of interest in civil society. Um, but on the side of the states, uh, I think they're choosing uh, to retain economic relations first and foremost, rather than um, uh, speaking out about something that may be impacting other Muslims uh, who live in China. So, Sean Roberts, just in the last couple of minutes, it does seem that the Chinese genocidal policies, particularly against the Tibetans, by extinguishing their religion and their culture, have worked as far as the Chinese are concerned. And the Chinese people propagandize into believing that the Tibetans and, and I guess by extension the Uyghurs are just ungrateful, you know, that we're giving them all this and, you know, we're building a railway up to uh, Tibet and we're doing all this stuff and <laughs> they don't mention they're building concentration camps, but they basically, that's their argument that these people are ungrateful. So if it's worked for the communist Chinese government in Tibet, will it work in Xinjiang against the Uyghurs? I mean, I think, uh, you know, one of the reasons that the Chinese government has acted so aggressively towards Uyghurs, you know, and has incarcerated and in turn uh, such a significant portion of, it, of their population is that they have been um, more resistant to a forced assimilation, I think, than any other peoples in the country. Um, the, Tibet is, the Tibetans are obviously a smaller population in China than are Uyghurs. And I think to a certain degree, the Chinese government's also, um, they, they don't necessarily need all Uyghurs and Tibetans uh, to be assimilated, but they need them to be pacified so that the state can do anything it likes in their homelands, regardless of what Uyghurs or Tibetans think. And I think that, you know, uh, one could argue that they there has been uh, a sense of success on the part of the state in doing that in Tibet. And I think it's going to be more difficult with Uyghurs. But I do think if the present situation continues for another five, 10 years, I think it it will be uh, successful. And, and really what will be the major casualty is is the, the Uyghur people's culture and identity and their attachment to a land that they see as their homeland that's very closely interrelated with their uh, group identity and culture. And of course, already the Chinese government is talking about taking firm countermeasures and uh, later in the week, uh, the 9th and 10th of this month, the White House is having its virtual summit on 100-plus democracies joining in. So obviously this issue is not going away, and nor should it in terms of human rights and the rule of law and democracy itself, none of which the Chinese Communist government give a damn about. So I thank you for joining us. I appreciate it. Thank you very much for having me. And again, I've been speaking with Sean Roberts, who's a professor of the Practice of International Affairs and Director of the International Development Studies Program at George Washington University's Elliott School of International Affairs. He's the author of the new book, The War on the Uyghurs, China's Internal Campaign Against a Muslim Minority. This has been Background Briefing. I'm Ian Masters. I'd like to thank producer Graham Fitzgibbon. If you missed any of today's program or would like to explore our vast archives, you can find us at backgroundbriefing.org, where we include extended interviews, searchable by topic, 
and have made it easy for you to sign up for daily email updates that provide links to resources, articles and books discussed on the program. Also, you can find links there to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And we also encourage you to rate and review us on those platforms. Find us on Twitter and Facebook at Ian Masters Media. And please do help us reach more listeners by sharing this program with friends, family and colleagues. To help us sustain this program into the future and ensure it remains free to all, please take a moment to support us by going to backgroundbriefing.org slash donate, where you will find our non-profit Public Truth Media Foundation, where your tax-deductible donations, large and small, keep us broadcasting. And I'll be back again tomorrow with another Background Briefing at backgroundbriefing.org. Bye for now. Disappeared by hand.